Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in these current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Seamus Durack. Seamus is the Managing Director of Nutraceutical Development Company, Phytoactive Limited. He's also a commercial finance broker for Acumen Finance. UK, an independent bloodstock advisor and racehorse trainer. Seamus, welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Thank you, Seamus, for taking the time to come onto the programme and speak with me for the uh, the listeners' benefit tuning into this. Now, the purpose of this discussion is to really understand your take on leadership. So if we think about that word leader in isolation first and foremost, what does that word mean to you, Seamus? How does it resonate? Well, basically, as somebody that um, kind of leads by example, um, inspires and motivates and uh, people around them and uh, looks for, you know, the best way to do stuff uh, or do, you know, conduct themselves and to, to conduct business or sport or, or whatever it is that, that, they're, um, that they turn their mind to. Mm. And if you had to describe your own leadership style, Seamus, um, how would you uh, talk about that? I'm pretty uh, low-key, to be honest. Just uh, I'm, I'm quite a reserved kind of guy. Um, I just like I like to be uh, be friendless with the, the people around me and um, be on an equal footing, but um, obviously at the same time to kind of implement um, the type of strategies that I want and um, just uh, basically I like to lead by example and I hopefully that you know that kind of inspires um people to um to to do their best because it's a you know it's a kind of an inclusive um organization Mm, can certainly understand where you're coming from with that approach, uh, Seamus, of trying to sort of balance out that kind of humility um, as a leader and being very much on an equal footing with people with, of course, being that sort of leadership figure who is trying to also get the best out of them at the uh, the same time. Um, you talk a lot there about, of course, the need to inspire as a leader as being a point of importance there. Um, are there any examples of people who you've encountered throughout your career who've maybe inspired you and been a real influence on yourself? I think in in uh, I come from a sporting background, so I was a professional jockey for many years, and uh, I've been good friends with uh, and uh, adversary to uh, Tony McCoy, and uh, he like he's always he's well known for his work ethic, um, but also for his um, ability to kind of uh, delegate and uh, give himself the best chance to focus on 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 what he was best at, which was given one hundred percent to to every horse that he rode in every race. So, you know, I thought that was him as an inspirational person for the general way to conduct yourself in life um, is is a good example. And various other people in the, the horse racing industry, which is where I have my roots, um, like Jim Bulger and, um, and John Magner. So people like that came from kind of small beginnings, not necessarily within racing, but they they saw opportunities and um, to do things differently and, and do things well and they were able to put, put themselves at the top of their game basically. 
Some really interesting examples there, there, Seamus, uh, particularly because, of course, they were visionaries in a certain way. They wanted to do things um, in a uh, different way, in the best way that was possible for them and uh, for those um, around them, uh, for sure. Um, and also, um, we've talked about sort of uh, the impact that they've had in terms of um, teaching you sort of the way to go about things in terms of delegating uh, for certain. Um, delegating is something that's incredibly important, especially when people are starting out um, as leaders uh, within the business environment, because it's an important step to take, isn't it? Moving away from doing everything yourself as business is growing to letting go and allowing other people to assume some responsibility, take on their own form of leadership and start to take a little bit more of a back seat in things. That can sometimes be one of the hardest challenges, can't it, uh, for leaders? But it's one that we essentially have to get over uh, nonetheless, isn't it? It is really, because if you want to scale up or um, kind of expand, you've got to be able to identify people that you trust and and teach them to to do things the way you want them done. Um, Otherwise, you you basically get to a stage where you reach a bottleneck and... uh, and for your own sanity, really, and and for the good of the good of the business, you uh, you definitely need to be able to um, kind of free yourself up to, to to do some of the higher, some of the more important things, and and promotion stuff as well, which means leaving the some of the, the daily running of the business to um, to your employees. I think that's absolutely right. And when you think about the team that's needed to be brought together to make that possible, when you're looking at the uh, the recruitment side of things, uh, Seamus, what sort of qualities are you really looking for in those people that you're looking to trust and delegate responsibility to? Like I, I, I just, I just like to to find somebody that's motivated and uh, and with you know with a bit of drive and and and, and intelligence. So even if they they're not familiar with the processes that that you're introducing them to they'll um if they're passionate about what you're doing they will um you know they will pick it up pretty quickly so that's kind of the, the, the key thing for me Exactly. It's it's a learning experience, isn't it? Um, I think when you're looking at people to uh, to come on board, it's important to understand uh, that they do have that motivation and that drive and that willingness to uh, succeed, of course. But I think there are skills can be developed, can't they? And um, it's the same with uh, becoming leaders as well. It's very much a learning process as opposed to just being something we're ready-made born with, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Well, yeah, and it, like the, the more obviously when when I was a, a jockey and um, when I came into business, it, it's taken me a long time to to pick up stuff. And and the longer I've been, you know, been in business, and uh, the more I've been inclined to to study it. And it's quite a, an interesting subject, really. But it, like, there's there's an awful lot to learn and and take on board. And you know, you, you could easily get bogged down in in um in kind of without without really but you, you can get bogged down in, in detail and uh and kind of it, it's it's very to be honest it's very easy to see how how businesses can fail if uh if um you don't if you don't if you don't study and keep and keep up to date on on, on the best process and on ways of doing stuff like which means from from dealing with people to to accounts and and everything else like there's there's a huge amount of stuff to to take on board even for for the owner of the business and mm. I think you should encourage you should, everybody should be encouraged to um to really keep studying and, and developing themselves as well as their staff 
Of course, it's all about um, adaptability and uh, continuous development, as you say, people management, um, as you mentioned there as well, um, incredibly important. Um, and even though, of course, it's been a real learning uh, curve for yourself, uh, Seamus, moving in um, to business from the uh, the sporting world, are there any kind of leadership qualities, I suppose, that you've been able to take from your previous career and transfer directly over that you've not had to sort of wholesale adapt during that process? I think the work ethic is, is, is the main thing. Like in, in sports, you've got to be extremely driven. And, uh, and in the case of a jockey, um, you know, have, have a really uh, high work ethic and and be fearless. I think jockeys in, in general are gamblers by nature, which but in, in terms of in business, I think you need to be, you need to be prepared to take calculated risks as the way, way up the, the pros and the cons and, and not be afraid to make a decision and, and go for it, you know? So I think that that was probably one of the main things. Mm, I think that's um, exactly right, uh, Seamus. Um, some really, really uh, good qualities that you've um, outlined there. And if you were to actually um, have the opportunity to maybe go back sort of 10, 15 years as you were taking that journey into business and maybe do one or two things differently, is there anything that you would change or would you just keep things the same and embrace that learning um, experience that you've been on already? I think I think I definitely could have um, educated myself better in, in terms of um, in terms of how to to handle handle people, um, clients, and, and staff, and and just basically the, the basic running of the business. So I had, I had a lot of it I had to do, kind of on, on the on the hoof, if you like. And um, you know, there was plenty of mistakes made along the way, but I suppose really that is the best way to learn. And as long as you're you're surviving, um, you're always getting stronger. So, you know, I, I could, I, I wish I, at, at the time now, I, w- I wish I'd have uh, looked into stuff as much as I do now and, and had as much interest in actual being a business person. Um, but, you know, I got, I got there in the end and, and like, it's just, you know, I suppose these things develop. So you kind of have your focus on, on different things uh, as you, as you grow older. But just basically, as I think as you mature, you, you kind of, realize the importance of of doing things and looking into in looking into things and doing them as properly as possible and I can imagine that in the context of the current climate as well with of course the COVID-19 pandemic and various businesses having to really feel their way through this uncharted territory that that's been of course a very difficult time um, it goes without saying uh, but also a real learning curve in itself and this will also breed further resilience and there'll be some positives from that to take going forward as well yeah, definitely, because it's um, we've definitely had to um, have an audit of uh, kind of costs and expenditure, and um, I think some of the things we've implemented will will definitely benefit the business uh, in the future. Um, it's become an awful lot more efficient, and um, like cost analysis and uh, expense reduction was something that we were implementing anyway, but we really really took it to a new level um, when, when our um, income stream is kind of reduced. So um, I think when we get back up to speed, um, you know, there's, there's kind of cost savings and and efficiencies that will be maintained, which should help us um, with profitability in the future. And if we do think about um, the future, um, before we do wrap things up on the, uh, the programme, Seamus, do give me an idea of what you envision the next year holding for yourself and for uh, the businesses and also what you hope to achieve, not just in getting through the COVID-19 pandemic, hopefully in that time, but also for beyond then as well and for the further future that uh, lies ahead. 
Well, I think um, I'm I'm keen to expand the um, the uh, commercial finance side side of my uh, dealings. Um, I've got um, several um, cases going on at the moment with with, with that, which is which is quite good. Um, but also, I think my, my main ambition is for the 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 nutraceutical company. Um, we, we've got a, a new product called um, uh, Element Collagen Vitality, which is a like a marine collagen supplement with um, various phytoactive ingredients for um, for uh, skin and and anti aging skin, bone, and hair. Actually, and we've um, we've been we've started selling it to some of the some of the kind of more bespoke um, aesthetic clinics around uh, London and in Wentworth, and that's uh, that's a product uh, I'd like to really see and uh, do well in in the coming couple of years. To be honest. And I think it would be fantastic, actually, Seamus, uh, given how informative it's been having you on the programme today, to perhaps catch up um, in that time and maybe discuss how that uh, product is uh, getting on and indeed how the other uh, business is doing with some of the new initiatives that it will have to um, undertake um, as part of the changing environment after COVID-19, for sure. Yeah, that would be great, yeah. I think so as well, Seamus. Um, it's a shame that we are just about out of time on the uh, the programme today because, um, as I say, I could talk about uh, those future plans for uh, quite a long time for sure. But thank you ever so much um, for taking the time to come onto the programme nonetheless and speak with me, Seamus. It's been a real pleasure and also a really, really insightful experience as well. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, thanks very much. Uh, it was great speaking to you. Thank you, Seamus. Do take care and do stay safe with everything still going on as well for sure. All right. Thank you. You as well. That was Seamus Durack, Managing Director of Phytoactive Limited, Commercial Finance Broker at Acumen Finance and an Independent Bloodstock Advisor and Racehorse Trainer. Coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and also the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. He rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians in Tony Blair's Cabinet, holding a number of senior positions and also serving as the Sheffield Brightside and Hillsborough MP for 28 years despite being blind from birth. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015 as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough, his old constituency from when he was an MP. I hope you enjoy listening to the interview just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett and that's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage obviously take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a 
politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, we'll be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people 
who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing, but as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different hi interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was 
all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. But very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your 
thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months, we, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002 when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect and what happens with one will then have a major impact on another 
and then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from the second week in May, on the side of the hawks in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back. Perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with 
ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them. Above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, 
um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm-hmm. each other. That is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.